trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast. George Mason University turned 50 years old this year, and actually we just celebrated it just this past week, and that will kick off a year-long celebration. My guest today has seen all of those 50 years up close and personal. Jim Treffel is a Robinson professor at Mason. He is a theoretical physicist and a proponent of science literacy who joined Mason in 1987 from the University of Virginia. He's an author of more than 50 books and winner of numerous awards. He also chaired the committee that founded Mason's College of Science and accepted the challenge to develop a new kind of science curriculum for general education. As Mason celebrates his 50th anniversary, I can't think of a person who better embodies the spirit of university as innovative, inclusive, and thriving as Jim Treffel. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the introduction, Greg. Well, it is so great to have you here. So you've been either teaching at the University of Virginia or George Mason University for 52 years. Yeah, what I tell people is my major accomplishment is not dying during that time. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. You know, that is longer than Mason has been an independent university. That's correct. And for those of you out there who may not know, Mason was a branch campus of the University of Virginia from its inception in 1957 until 1972 when it became an independent institution. So, Jim, you've seen Mason grow from its modest beginnings to becoming Virginia's largest public university and a top-rated R1 research institution. Yes. I'm curious as to what your perception of Mason was when you got to Virginia in 1970, and what do you credit with its quick rise in achievement and reputation? Coming here in those days, Greg, it reminded me kind of, uh, you see these uh, towns in the old Western movies, you know, with the unpaved street and the plank sidewalks and the false fronts on the buildings. Yep. I mean, it was it was this huge construction site. People were teaching in uh, in trailers and in uh, all kinds of spaces that we wouldn't use anymore. But things were happening. It was it was a place that was alive. You got the impression, you know, here's someplace I can go and I can do things. I can try things out. And if they don't work well, okay, fine, then we'll try something else. But this was part of uh, the big attraction of Mason to me at the time. And I think it's something that that we still have. We still have that particular right. way of going. At things. You know, you say that, and that just conjures up so many discussion points for me because we just had a meeting of our leadership team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in those days when you're young and you're just establishing yourself and you're trying to build a great institution, you can try different things. You can take risk and you move forward, right? Well, but now we have a cohort of people who look at us as we've arrived and we have something to lose now. And so there's this pushback, this hesitancy against being that kind of swashbuckling, innovative, not afraid to try new things, not afraid to fail forward institution that we were in the past. What would you say to that? 
that. Well, you know, I don't see a lot of that attitude. Maybe as president, you, you see more of it than I do. But I, I still see a lot of what I call the traditional Mason spirit. I see people coming in, trying different things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But this is a place where you, you are allowed to try things and where you don't have to be like everybody else. Well, I, I, obviously, I love that spirit. That's exactly where we want to be. So what brought you to Mason? Well, that was it. This letter shows up, says we have this Robinson Professor program. We're looking for people, senior academics who want to teach undergraduates, basically. And that's exactly what I was trying to do at Virginia at the time. And uh, I remember coming up here and going to George Johnson's office. He was a really good recruiter, I got to tell you, Greg. But he just looks at me and says, look, I understand the attraction of a place like UVA. The one thing I can promise you, if you come to Mason, you will never hear anybody tell you, we don't do things that way. And that was it for me. I was sold. Hmm. Well, maybe I'd need to employ some good old George Johnson techniques there. So maybe I'll get, get some pointers for me offline here. Okay. So you're 83 years old. Yes. And it doesn't seem like you are slowing down anytime soon. Well, so, I, you know, I've got a lot of things I would still want to get done. I mean, no, I hear you. And, that, and that's my point. What motivates you? What keeps you going? Well, you know, I, I guess the, the central thing is there's something that I call the scientific worldview. It's, it's this idea, a way of looking at the universe that's developed over many centuries. And I want our students to leave here with that in their heads. I want, I want them, the Mason graduates, I, I'd love to have every college graduate in the country have a, a good picture of how the universe works. But uh, I'll settle for just having Mason students do it right now. No, I hear you. I hear you. I'd like to delve into something you recently said, and that is to live in the United States in the 21st century, you really should know a little bit about science. Yeah. But the fact is that we have seen concentrated efforts in this country in particular to discredit not just science, but also scientists. Most explicitly, we've seen this during the pandemic. Yeah. So uh, so talk about that comment. What do you mean by it? And Ideally, once science gets mixed up in politics, the, the example you're, you're giving, the, the rules of the game change. I mean, it's okay for a scientist to say, you know, I had this theory and the theory's wrong. I mean, that's what you do. You know, you follow the data. But it's not okay for a politician to say that because then you're seen as flip-flopping and you get these kind of negative connotations to it. And so I guess I'm, I'm kind of a purist and I, I would like the science to stay separate from the politics. I don't, I don't think that's always possible. Mm-hmm. That's isn't. exactly right. Or, 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 as much or, as possible. Or better yet, the politics of science. We need to try to avoid that. You know, if, if scientists concentrate on the data and what, what's coming out, as happened during the pandemic, I mean, I have incredible uh, respect for Tony Fauci, you know, which I had before this started, but just the way he's handled it. Just follow the data, and if the data changes, you change what you're saying. You know, that's, that's what science is, and I'd like people to appreciate that. No, I hear you. So what would you make of the current atmosphere in America relative uh-huh. to science? Let's pull the political barbs aside. And you've dealt so much in science literacy. Yeah. So what would you say the atmosphere is right now in terms of people's regard for science? I I worry a lot that there's a lot of negativity. I mean, uh, I forget what percentage of of people, when they're asked, think that dinosaurs and human beings lived at the same time. And, you know, you get that kind of, you can find those kind of statistics. And they're very discouraging. And that's one reason why I'd I'd like to, to change the way we teach science. 
science, and that's the things we're pioneering here at Mason. It's interesting yeah. that if dinosaurs and humans existed at the same time, we would probably cause the extinction of the dinosaurs, right? Or vice versa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'd but, have to be some really smart dinosaurs. But I think just having a basic idea of you know, this is how the world works. This is what happens when you put a lot of carbon into the atmosphere. This is what happens when you get a, a new kind of vaccine. Just to understand the basic science behind those things. The problem is that very often the questions that people encounter aren't just about science. Science is one piece of them. The example I like to use is uh, research on stem cells. People have very strong moral feelings about that, you know, pro or con. But if you don't know what a stem cell is, you can't even get into the debate. That's exactly and, right. And that's the point about scientific literacy. What I want is our students to go out and know what a stem cell is, and they, they can use their own moral calculus to decide what to do then. That, that's not my business. But you know, the interesting part about your the statement you just made is that it's A, absolutely true, but B, and more importantly, people don't care that they don't know what a stem cell is. Oh, yeah. They just know yeah. that what somebody told them they think it is, and they will argue on that point. Right. Yeah, I, I think what psychologists are finding is that there are these certain subjects, stem cells being one of them, where what's involved is a person's uh, sense of self-identity. And this gets very deep, and it's, it's, it's not something that you can mess with particularly. But very often when you get people who feel that way, all the facts in the world aren't going to change their mind. I've run into that. I don't know what to do about it. I think we have to help people see the value of scientific inquiry and understanding science because at least at that point, when you're told something, you will go and do a modest amount of investigation Mm -hmm. to determine the accuracy and validity of what you've been told. Right now, we just have folk, they hear things, they follow whoever they listen to that told them this, and they have absolutely zero idea of the theoretical, analytical, or computational basis for whatever it is they're spouting. Now, they can tell you the effect, which is the political piece of it, yeah, uh, or at least the effect that they see, but they can't really explain to you what the entity is that they're actually against. And we're seeing this happen more and more and more. People are against something because they've been told to be against it, not because they really understand it. They think they understand it, but they understand someone's interpretation of it. Yeah, you see that a lot in vaccine hesitancy, people who aren't going to take the uh, COVID vaccine. That's right. I saw so many misconceptions around the COVID vaccine. And it's weird stuff like it's going to change your DNA or they're they're putting computer chips in. You know, you you just look at it and say, how could anybody possibly believe that? Right. but, But they do. Yeah. Oh, by the way, let me just say, I thought throughout the whole pandemic thing, I was sending your letters to friends of mine and uh, they were were very impressed. You, You did a hell of a job. Well, we've been able to manage this reasonably well up to this point, and we still got a ways to go. So I have a question, another question for you. You have provided a solution with your course and textbook written with now Robinson Professor Emeritus Robert Hazen. Yeah. And that textbook is now used in more than 200 colleges and universities around the country. And it's called Great Ideas in Science, right? That solution kind of gets at what we were talking before, because this is a class for non-science majors that actually introduces ideas that have shaped science. And to me, it's critical. Let me diverge just a little bit here, okay? because this is something, one of the biggest pet peeves of mine. 
we live in a society where 85% of our gross domestic product emanates directly from advances in science and technology. 85%. Yes. It is literally everywhere. And we have these discussions about a liberal arts education or an education that's more technical and science-based. And Mm. it used to be back in the early days in which educational networks in the country were forming that liberal education was really about understanding the basics of how the world around you operated. Mm -hmm. And you needed to understand this entity in a broad-based context. And it was just about being a learned individual, right? Liberal arts education included mathematics. It included science. It included history. It included the arts, right? Mm -hmm. But what has happened over the last 30 years or so, these things are bifurcated. Mm -hmm. And the average graduate today in the liberal arts can't explain the built world, the built environment. That's right. Right? And it's a problem because we actually live in a built environment, right? And mm-hmm. you turn on a light switch in a room. If you ask a group of graduates from our institution, what happens when you turn on that light switch? How does the power get to the light bulb? Yeah. Many of them can't explain that process to you, right? If you, uh, You're absolutely, in fact, Greg, you, you, you just hit on the, the book I'm working on now with National Geographic because, and that's, that's my prime example, if you flip a switch, there's this huge technological structure in back of that switch. That's right. And that's invisible. And trying to say, okay, if you flip the switch, here's what has to happen, you know, starting with the generator rotating way, you know, a couple hundred miles away and et cetera, et cetera. But to me, when we talk about the basics of engineering and even programming nowadays, mm-hmm. all students should have a basic understanding of the environment, the technology, the built environments that's, that's around them, and they should have a basic understanding of programming. You walk around, you carry an iPhone, you carry an iPad, you carry these tools around and you use them every day. The learned individual should have a basic understanding of how these things work and why they work, right? Absolutely. And that's the piece that we're missing. And so I'm a huge proponent for including these entities as part of a liberal education, not separate from it. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, if you look at the the original seven liberal arts, there's several of them are mathematics, astronomy. It was what you needed to be a learned individual at that time, right? But times have changed now. Yeah, and, and the point is that people who are writing their critiques of science are doing them on laptops, which are the product of science. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. That is a good one. <laughs> and so I really like this context. You know, I heard you say that it is important to write about science for a lay audience. Absolutely. Did that concept come to you with respect to your classes, or right. how did you come up with that? I can tell you the story. It's, it's, it's not very pretty. When I was at University of Virginia, they had the annual physics lecture for the university, and I was the only guy around who knew what a quark was, so they asked me to talk about quarks, which I did. And at the end of the talk, my then graduate student, he's now retired, from being chief scientist at Lockheed. But uh, Jeff Neumeyer came up and said, hey, Jim, that was a great talk. You ought to send it to Playboy. 
<laughs> and what could I say? I was young. So I sent it off to Playboy, and I got a very nice letter back saying, well, you know, this really isn't the kind of stuff we do in Playboy. Have you thought about Smithsonian? Which I hadn't, but then I did, and then that was how I got started in writing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So you actually took him up on the bit, huh? There is life even if you've been rejected by Playboy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Wow. So I assume that all your books, and you've written now more than 50, mm-hmm. they're written in the same way, right, for a lay audience. Is that well, correct? Most of them. They're, they're, there was a, a couple of textbooks, a fluid mechanics textbook and stuff like that. But, but most of them are written trying to just say, look, this is how the universe came to be. This is what a star is. This is how come you have all these atoms in your body. You know, the, 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 just these very fundamental questions. Oh, this is but, really, but, really but cool. The standing rule is that for every equation you put, into a book like that, you lose half your sales. <laughs> so, so, so the, Amazing. The, the motive is to not to have, to have as few equations as possible. And, but, but that's what scares people about, about science, is, is they're afraid of the math. No, no, I get it. And, and I just, get it. Tell them, look, the, the ideas are simple, but and you don't need the math to, to kind of get the ideas. You need the math if you're going to be a scientist. You know what, though? I'm not altogether sure of that. And, and let me explain to you why. So I'm an engineer by training. Sure. I, I know you know that. And modern engineering, believe it or not, is not a lot of equations, right? You learn a lot of that in the classroom. Mm-hmm. But when you're out in the, in the field working, the software does most of the calculations for you. Yes, you do some design, but that's more learning software that you build a structure, it tell it where the loads are, and it tells you if it, if it can fail or not, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then a lot of it is managing technology and managing technical yeah. projects, right? You got a team of individuals, and you're working with those individuals to get a specific tax done, right? Exactly. I am surprised at how few people sit at a bench or sit at their desk with equations. It's just not how most engineering is done these days. Yeah, it's done with computer models. Of course, and without you, question. You let the computer do it for you. Yeah, I agree with you. That's an interesting way of looking at it. When I was uh, working on my master's degree, mm-hmm. I worked with a group of scientists. We were working on the return mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were the guys who eventually would be a part of the team that developed the the two rovers uh, that were on on the planet. Mm -hmm. These guys literally did the design for the spacecraft that sent these entities to Mars. They they did the design on napkins. And literally, (laughs) they did the design on napkins at an Applebee's. And I was sitting right there with them. There were no equations. What a great story. Right? And it was really interesting. We went back in to the conference to give the presentation on this work. And back in those days, when you gave presentations like that, you had to go get transparencies made. Yeah. And so they literally took the napkins and put them on a a copier and printed the transparencies and every single transparency had an Applebee's logo. And I knew Applebee's could have paid for this thing. They would have. They would have just. They would have. They would have. They would have done re- reasonably well. Although well, there were no equations, so they wouldn't have to worry about losing the audience per slide, right? But it was a really good thing. Those those napkins belong at the Smithsonian. <laughs> what a great story. Yeah. So. 
it's difficult to make that transition, I presume, going from a hardcore scientist who can speak on the concept of quarks to a person that's primarily speaking to lay audiences. Um, You've got to learn not to use footnotes. Really? That, That was the hardest thing. Because, you know, if you're an academic, you always want to qualify every statement. You, you can't do that. You've got to avoid getting into the weeds as much as you can. When I, I have occasionally taught writing seminars here at Mason, mm-hmm. and, and I, I try to get students, uh, you know, to think of what they're writing as a river. And every time they go off into something on the side, you, you, you're branching off from the river, and you, that takes away from your message. Oh, that is fantastic. Yeah. That's a good lesson for anybody, not just a scientist, by the way. Well, what's, what struck me about that when I started teaching these seminars, I would look at my own writing and say, <laughs> and I was making the same mistake that they were. No, I hear so, you. Yeah. Well, along those lines, I like the concept of meditations at 10,000 feet, oh, yeah. where you write about spending your summers hiking in Montana yeah. and how that experience made you think about how the universe worked. Can you talk a little bit about that? The message was, and that's the message of several of my books, is you don't have to be in a lab or a lecture to learn science. You live in a world that's full of science, and the mountains are one example, but the city is another. And basically, I think what, what got me started on that was, you know, I was hiking up this trail, I was above the timber line, and I could look down and I saw these hawks circling. They were in, it was a rising bubble of warm air. And so they were just going in circles and, and being pulled up. And at some point they leave the bubble and then go on their hunting. Mm-hmm. But if you think about that, there's, there's, there's thermodynamics, there's chemistry, there's aerodynamics, there are all kinds of things going on in those hawks. Oh yeah, without question. And so what I tried to do is just say, well, okay, what are those other things? Let me tell you what those other things are. And, and, and that, that's kind of the attitude that I take when I do that kind of writing. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of sense. There's this other book that has a great title, the one you wrote with Mike Professor Summers. Mike Summers, right? Yeah. What is it? Imagine Life, Imagine Life, a right. speculative scientific journey among the exoplanets yeah. in search of intelligent aliens, ice creatures, and super gravity animals. So talk about that one. What is it? What's the concept okay, there? Well, the, the central point is that we have discovered in the last 20 years that there are many more planets in the galaxy than there are stars. I mean, there are billions of planets. You, if you think of any kind of planet, weird planet you want to, provided it doesn't violate the laws of physics, it's not only out there, but there are probably millions of them out there. And so that means you have all these different kinds of environments on these planets. We know the basic law that governs how life works. It's evolution by natural selection. So what if you take that mechanism and you put it on a planet where the gravity is 10 times what it is on Earth? or you put it on a planet that's solid ice. You, and then, then you start thinking that way. And it was great fun writing the book because you could just turn your imagine loose, imagination loose. You just say, on this kind of world, here's where you're gonna wind up because this is where natural selection is gonna drive you. But on a different world, you, you find something very different. My favorite was the, the, the ice world, which has a layer of ice 
over a rocky core like the Earth. And so at the vents, the places like the mid-ocean vents on Earth, you would have little areas where the ice would be melted. And that's, that's where you'd look for life to develop. And then I thought of, well, what would the technology be? They wouldn't use wheels, but they could use a hose. You take hose, uh, the hot stuff coming up in the interior, and you spray it on the ice, you melt the ice, you can make passages. And I, we kind of imagined a, an interplanetary transportation system made in that way, where, where you, you know the centers of civilizations were at the places where the vents are, which is where the magma is coming up Understood. from underneath the surface. And if you had a planet that had 10 times the gravity of Earth, the people would be 10 times the height, right? Most no, likely. No, probably one-tenth. They'd yeah, be, I'm be, sorry, yeah, one-tenth the height. Yeah, they'd be short and squat, and uh, they'd look like elephants rather than ants. That's exactly right. So what do you think about the way aliens are portrayed on TV or in the movies? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, since we don't know any of them, we can't say they're wrong. I'm a big science fiction fan, by the way, I, I should tell you. Well, you and me both. If you look at the, you know, sort of the Star Trek type, what's obviously going on is they don't have enough money to make really realistic aliens, so they're all humanoids and they just change the face. Oh yeah, just yeah. change the color of the face. Yeah, I mean the hair even the hair even tends to look very similar to yeah. the hair that yeah, you know. Or put a couple of ripple ridges or something. <laughs> well, I, I once started to try to learn Klingon, you know, just to give you an <laughs> oh wow, because I thought it'd be fun, but I never got got very far with it. That, that's understandable from a dramatic point of view. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but in the original Star Trek, the Klingon they didn't have money to make Klingons. They just had guys with kind of a green coloring on their face and, and heavy mustaches. That's right. Yeah. In fact, there's a wonderful episode later on where there's a time travel and uh, a group go with a, a modern Klingon back to that uh, to an era and they watch, it's obviously they're watching a film from the, the original Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And they said, the Klingons used to look like that. And the Klingon says, yes. And he says, well, what happened? And he said, we do not speak of it. <laughs> Which I think is one of the greatest lines ever written. You bring this up, and it kind of harkens back to our earlier conversation. But even in those movies, which were about science fiction, mm -hmm. you had this challenge with science, right? So I was a big Star Trek guy, right? Okay. And we're, of course, we're, we're as a scientist, as an engineer, my favorite character was Spock, right? Oh. But everybody loved Kirk, right? Well, he I'm was the Spock. swashbuckling, you know. No, I'm a uh, Spock fan. Too, of so. course you are. I, I know you're a Spock fan, right? Yeah. But it's really, really interesting that Spock was the smart, intelligent, logically thinking unemotional. guy. Unemotional, right? Yeah. And Kirk was the swashbuckling, act on impulses, emotional, uh, emotional. But in the end, he always got the girl. Yeah. He always saved the day. You get what I'm saying here? He was the hero, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that in our thinking. And I don't know if art imitated belief or if because you had that dichotomy, so to speak, between Spock mm. and, be, you know, and Kirk, yeah. did that help guide individuals thinking, right? So they were looking at, you know, we were looking at that growing up and you begin to think, okay, well, the smart folk are kind of 
foreign. They cold. kind of, cold. yeah, they're cold. They're, they're, they're not emotional. Huh. They're calculating. They are logical. And I wonder which one came first. That's a very good question. You know, I never found that to be a problem because Spock was Spock, and, and I'm who I am, or whatever that means. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I never felt that I had to be like Spock. No, I hear you. I hear you. you know, I've read things where people complain about the character of Spock as, as being sort of a negative stereotype for what we call today a nerd. No, no, that's right. That's exactly what I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. And I don't know if the image came from Spock, from the character itself, and that kind of infused that image in society, or was that image already there and the art was imitating what was already existing in society, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I kind of think it's a, the, the, the second thing that, yeah. that, that happened. That You had the picture of the, the nerdy guy in high school with the thick glasses and never gets the girl and et cetera, et cetera. But then you'd have the exact opposite of that in the Marvel Universe where you have Tony Stark, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Tony Stark is this physicist and engineer. Oh, yeah. And... Iron Man, he always got the girls. He was he was really, really cool, right? And it's almost like they tried to turn that image on his head because even in the uh, the comic books, Tony Stark was not like the Tony Stark that was portrayed in the Marvel movies. I, 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 you got me on that because I've never read the comic books. Ah, okay, I get you. So you have this great story about how a colleague of yours asked you a simple question at a Christmas party that led to a major breakthrough. Yeah, Can you this, talk about that? The two people were, one was the late Harold Morowitz, the guy who founded the Krasnow Center, and Bob Hazen that, that you mentioned earlier. Wow. And uh, Bob is a, a, a mineralogist, a guy who looks at the structure of minerals. And they were sitting there, and Harold was very concerned about the origin of life. How did life begin on Earth? And there are some theories where life was kind of catalyzed by having clays. And so he asked Bob, he said, were there clays four billion years ago? You know, and Bob had never thought about that. And then he told me that he went home, he didn't sleep that night. He just began thinking that you, you know, you start with simple minerals and then over time you have chemical reactions that create more complex minerals. It's just like the evolution of life. And he began developing that. And now that's that's a major thing in mineralogy. But it began, I, I could actually show you the chair at our house they were sitting in. Oh, that's amazing. When the question was asked. That is amazing. Yeah, and, and it, it shows the importance of, of interdisciplinary contacts at a university because had they not been sitting there, they'd never have had that conversation. No, that's right. Yeah. Well, conversations are truly important in terms of determining our directions as scientists, but also as youth, right? So you, you had the story of when you were a youth, right, where you were a regular at the Field Museum and the Adler Planetarium in Chicago. Yeah, because they were free at the time, and we uh, you just go down there on a weekend, and you could just wander around the museum the whole day. It was fantastic. So you had some interest in science, but it took a conversation with a high school teacher, right, that yeah, turned well, I, you towards I, I, science. Can I you talk about in, that? Yeah, I grew up in a blue-collar ethnic neighborhood, and it wasn't that I didn't think I could be a scientist. It just never occurred to me that, that, that something would happen to me. But the, my high school chemistry teacher, 
you took me aside and he gave me the lecture. He said, look, kid, you're good at this. You can do it. You should think about that. And then all the stuff with the museums just kind of flooded in. He said, well, wow, I could, I could be one of those people I, was, I saw at the museums. And uh, th that's, that's how I started. Actually, I started um, at the University of Illinois. I was going to be a chemistry major. But I go into the chemistry classes and I keep asking these questions like, you know, why do the electrons behave that way and not some other way? And they would tell me, well, you got to go to physics to get the answer to that. <laughs> they so, were just running you to physics. So I, I was gone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Physics is where you ask the fundamental questions. You know? That's exactly right. Yeah. That is exactly right. So what are some of the big trends, the big topics in physics right now? that we should be aware of and keep our eyes on? Well, there are many different areas of physics. The one that probably is the most fundamental is, is the one where they're trying to understand the basic structure, the, the sort of structure of the universe. So you, you, know, you start with materials, you find out they're made out of molecules, you find the molecules are made of atoms, atoms have uh, nuclei. Inside the nuclei, there are lots, all kinds of elementary particles. I've just taken you through about 300 years of history. Mm -hmm. and. The elementary particles are made of things we call quarks. And so the, the question is, is that all there is? Is there another layer? Do we peel another layer off the onion? We have something called a standard model that describes the fundamental forces except for gravity. And physicists have tried for the last 50 years to expand our understanding of forces that would, so that gravity would be like the other forces, the electrical force, for example. Einstein spent the last 20 years of his life trying to do that and failing. So it gives an idea of how hard it is. Wow. That's a major field of research. I, I, I don't know if what's going to happen, whether, you know, traditionally in physics, you, know, you get a lot of data and then you see, oh, our old ideas are wrong, we're going to change them, and you get something new. This is almost the reverse of that because we have one large accelerator and that's it, the one in Geneva. So I, I guess the, the characteristic of science that's exciting is you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know where it's going to go, and that's one thing. That, that is in that state. That we, you know, so, something's going to happen, but we have no idea what it is. No, I get it. That's exactly right. Well, you know, I'd like to take you back to your time at Mason as we come down the home stretch. Sure. We talk so much about diversity at Mason. How has that element of the university played out in your classes? Oh, I love it. Oh, I think I mentioned that I grew up in Chicago, and Chicago is not a, so much a city as a bunch of little villages that grew together. And so, you know, there are very clear ethnic neighborhoods in the city, and I lived in one of them. And for me, walking across the Johnson Center and hearing three or four different languages at different tables, it's like being back in Chicago in my youth. Wow. Uh, let me give you one example of how it plays out in a class. I, I teach a class on the history of science. And one of the things I talk about is the Islamic golden age, the Islamic contributions to science. And when I do that, I have the kids read the Rubaiyat because I want them to understand that these men who were developing algebra and, uh, you know, astronomy and medicine were polymaths. They, you know, a guy who would be the world's greatest eye surgeon, but he's also a professional lute player and, and probably two or three other things at the time. Well, it turns out there was a young woman in my class who read Farsi, so she could actually read the Rubaiyat in the original. And her mother, who was a doctor had as a hobby uh, the study of ancient Persian poetry. And so I, I, I convinced him to come into the class and, and give a little talk about not just here's a poem by a guy you're studying who did, figured out how to solve the cubic equation, but here's the general atmosphere in which that kind of poem was written, and here's what Persian poetry is like. You know, you couldn't do that in other places. Without question. So when you look
look back at your career, where does this helping establish the Mason College of Science rank? Well, I have spent most of my life trying to avoid administrative responsibilities. (laughs) You better than I. Yeah, the the point is that at that time, we were just getting to the stage where we had a lot of nationally ranked scientists on on the faculty, particularly in the computer sciences, and we needed to go for major grants. If if you're going to go to uh, somebody like the National Science Foundation and say, you know, give me $10 million, they want to know that you'd be able to deal with it. And having a college of science was one one thing. We said, well, look, we have a college of science and we have this administrative structure and that administrative structure. And you can give us the money and be sure it'll be well spent. And I, th- I see that as kind of a the start. I mean, the, we don't need to make that case anymore. We That's right. Obviously, you know, there. But, but at the very beginning, science was fairly weak at this university at the start. And this was a, a statement to the world that we were going to really do something in this area. Well, that's really, really cool to hear. So let's get back to the beginning of our conversation. What do you tell students about science and the future at a time where science is in some ways under attack? The way I teach my courses, I have a lot of individual contact with the students. I, I supervise PowerPoint presentations and, and group work and things like that. And so probably I'm teaching more by example than uh, by lecturing. You know, they'll say something and I'll say, well, you know, I don't, I don't think that number's right. That, that doesn't seem right to me. Convince me I'm wrong. And they'll go back and they'll either find out that, that I am wrong or the, that they're wrong. But the point is that I get across this notion that just because I'm a professor doesn't mean I know everything in the world. And I think that's an important thing for them to understand. It's interesting. Part of the whole process of getting your PhD and going through the learning process that gets you to that point is a steady realization of how little you actually do know oh boy, while you're learning it. more and more and more, right? And the older you get, the worse it gets. <laughs> no, I get you. Yeah. I get you. No, absolutely. Well, Jim, this has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. And I want to thank you for your years of service and for this great conversation. Well, you're very welcome, Greg, and I've enjoyed it immensely, too. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, that will wrap things up here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Jim Treffle, a George Mason University Robinson professor and one of our great educators for helping our students and the community to better understand science and for helping us celebrate Mason's 50th anniversary. I am President Gregory Washington saying until next time, stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.